My guest this episode you could describe as many things. A poet, an actor, and even an activist. You'll find him treading the boards not only as a voice of theatrics, but also as a respected voice of reason in the sometimes socio-economic nightmare that is modern-day Ireland. As comfortable on the Late Late Show couch beside Tuberty as he is on one of the 5am after party, it's the latter that he drew experience from for what has been his most successful work to date, the play and film of the same name, Dublin Old School. This is Emmett Kerwin. You must be pretty sick of this at this stage, are you? Microphones in front of your face the whole time, or is it just a hazard of the job now? Hazard of the job, yeah. I haven't actually done any fucking, uh, what's the word? I haven't done any bleeding voiceovers in a while, so, you know? Okay, tell me this, right? As a young fella growing up in Tala, who would have been quite artistic, articulate, and dramatic, and it, that led you to a path of being a playwright, an actor, and even an activist... Did you get the shite kicked out of you in school? Didn't get that much stick in my school. You get, um, it's one of those things, like, you know, no, Gallagher says it, it's like anybody, anything that's different will, you know, get the ire of somebody, you know? Mm. It's like, oh, you're playing a guitar. Oh, I'm going to beat you with that guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, it did, like, it didn't, it didn't amongst my friends, but, like, what it does is, it, there is that thing, like, like any kind of young person is like don't attract too much attention to yourself mm. but if you do you know you run the risk of kind of fucking getting shit kicked out of you or whatever like that but like Tala was one of those kind of places like estates fought with each other just for the fact that you were from a different estate <laughs> do you know what mm. I mean so if you were the kind of person that was involved in drama in any way someone would go oh you think I'm bleeding deadly you know mm-hmm. this is the thing you know it's you find that even as an actor as, as someone who does anything the more you talk or the more you speak or the more you're on television or radio or anything like that um, you, you attract attention sometimes it's good but a lot of the time just by virtue of speaking people get pissed off mm, it creates jealousy in people yeah to a degree and it's, you know it's, it's, it's kind of I don't know if it people always go tall poppy syndrome I don't know if it is but there is a kind of thing that's about people where they go I want you to stop creating and I want you to stop doing what you're saying because you're saying stuff and I want you to stop saying stuff because I have stuff to say and no one's listening to what I have to say it's essentially the the, 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 the main thing of it I think you know What was the genesis of the whole drama and acting thing with you? Um, when I was, I was younger I kind of when I was younger I don't, do you know, I don't, I can't actually pinpoint it, but I do know it said to my parents, you know, one stage I said, look, I would like to do, my mother brought me to see Blood Brothers in, uh, in town, you know, it was, a, it was obviously a matinee, there was nobody in it, it must have been in the Olympia or something like that, and it was really Russell, it was quite a working class kind of writer, and I was like, all oh, right, there's stories like that, because you wouldn't associate kind of um, Coronation Street, I suppose, with those mm. kind of things, but like, you kind of go, oh, actually this story kind of resonates or something, I like it, you know, and it just... I was just really blown away with how kind of stage works, you know what I mean? So it was really kind of stage was the thing that kind of, um, stage was the thing that really I was attracted to. So I went to youth theatre and the thing about going to youth theatre was when you live in a place like Tala, it's quite enclosed. It's, it's its own ecosystem in itself and safely you could actually live breed and, and never go outside of Tala as a young person you could live, like stay in that particular area and have friends that are off in that particular area as well but what happened was when I went to U Theatre you were given Dublin U Theatre was great it was only like 20 quid for the entire year nobody was there because only because they could pay for it it wasn't like a drama school it, it was full of people who were creative they wanted to be writers wanted to be directors and essentially you were given the run of a whole Jordan Gaff in town and the freedom of that, of just sitting around with all these other people who weren't just from Tala, they were all from different parts of Dublin, like everywhere in Dublin. And that was kind of quite, you know, people might say, that's well, not really a great kind of world lesson or it doesn't make you worldly. But at the age of 14 or 15, that is a huge thing. Mm. You know what I mean? You're not just hanging around with your sports team who are probably all from the same place or your school friends who are definitely all from the same place. You know, you're, you're getting this kind of broad spectrum of society you can't articulate that at the age of 16 because you haven't got the language or the the, 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 understanding. Not, the understanding of it. But um, just the ability to be with all these people, they pull you up, they give you different ideas, they make you better. 
and you become open to kind of a lot more kind of stuff that you were never open to before. So then it became a compunction. It became a, a compulsion, I should say, um, to to write and to act and to do all these kind of things, you know? I think I first got to know you around about 2006. When was the Fraser Frage period? When did that kick off? That was, I think that was early like 2007. Right, okay. I think it was just before that I met you. Yeah. And the one thing that always stuck with me about you <laughs> is that I have such a collector nature and I'm, I'm kind of the person that if I'm into something, I'm into it 100%. Yeah, and I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were the only prick that used to come up to me and go, see that Adidas jacket you have on? That's a retro. Why have the original of that? <laughs> I, Do you know, I think I remember that one. Was it a Canada one? It was a red and white Canada one. I don't think I was that much of a prick about it. I know, it. you weren't. No, no. You weren't. I mean, they were the exact ones. Yeah, yeah. I have the original of that. And I was yeah, just yeah. like, fuck him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I can vividly remember being away with a friend of mine one time. I think we were in like Amsterdam or Berlin. And I remember seeing this. Uh, it was some zippy up top. And I was like going, I think I'm going to buy that. I wonder if Carolyn got the original of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. This is I the can thing. show you. You probably have more of me now. <laughs> I, I've had the vacuum. Like, that's, I'm like that as well. Like, I kind of fell in love with um, Adidas tops. Like, when I was, yeah, it was in my teen years. My brother had one from the 70s. And then I'd start trying to find kind of ones that were, you know, and then, like, as the, like, you know, broadband was kind of kicking off in 06, mm. 07. Like, you could find out when, when it was made, where it was from, mm-hmm. you know. So, like, you get your hand. I got one, a, a Wimbledon one. Uh, from like 1985 or something like that you know really random mm. that Canada one was from the 82 Winter Olympics I think uh, and it was like the difference between it was like it was cotton as opposed to the thing yeah. on the top of it or yeah. printed on the top yeah, yeah. probably wasn't made in a sweatshop either <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, like yeah. handmade by some like you know milkmaid in London fucking, at the time or something but that's actually so bad like I was in fucking Fred, uh, Fred Perry there in London and they actually have a they have a brand now called Made in England mm. New Balance have been doing that for years with their shoes. They have like a made in England and a made in the USA type thing. But the, but the fret, like you're kind of going, it's like, yeah, it's like this one's made, you know, as if you're going, so it's like, what's wrong with the one that's made in fucking... It, wa- it wasn't stitched with the tears of a small Asian yeah, child. Yeah, it's like fucking, you know, what, what are your fucking work practices for the other ones then if you're if you're, if you're selling this as a as a marketing tool of mm. quality, you know? Mm. Jesus, like, anyway. But uh, yeah. that, that, was, that was the first thing I remember, because so, that's how you and I became mates, because every time I ever saw you, it was always... See this new topper, blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah, some yeah, of the yeah. Why Adidas over Nike? Yeah, that's a good one. You know what it was, right? In talent, Nike used to release uh, Air Max Classics. They used to release a new colour every six months, mm-hmm. and there was like always one person like in your crew or fucking from the estate that got the new pair every time. Which you kind of like go, that would be exhausting, you know, money wise, mm. you know that kind of way. Like so, everybody always wore them, and I remember. There was a kind of running gag in the 90s. They used to say that, what was it? Now, like, I don't know, it's probably apocryphal now at this stage. Like, but there was, a, there was a quote, you know, saying that 70% of all footprints in Irish crime scenes have an Air Max in them. Like, <laughs> <laughs> now, whether or not it's true or apocryphal or fucking, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I remember thinking myself, I was like, oh, fuck this, man. This is the bleeding runner of scumbags. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Whereas, like, it means something different for, you know, like, other other people wouldn't think that. They think, like, this is an incredibly expensive mm. runner that's, like, 150 fucking euros. Do you know what it was? I'd say the Adidas thing was just because my brothers had it, because of the classic kind of uh, um, marketing campaigns that, that, that tied it to hip-hop, you know, Run DMC, I always just liked the way an Adidas runner sat on my, mm. my feet you know what I mean like that kind of flat kind of thing and then in the 90s as well it was it was because it was the runner of like my we were huge indie fans you know that kind of way like mm-hmm. so it was kind of the runner of the raves it was the runner of um, of you know fucking Oasis like Stone Roses you know that kind of way like a classic pair of sambas mm. so you're kind of emulating your heroes you know that kind of way mm-hmm. so it, it was part mod or new mod, whatever you want to call it. And like, yeah, so I think that was mainly the reason. Yeah, it w- would have been the same for myself because obviously like, I was a huge Oasis fan growing up. Yeah. And then like I really got into Bape and stuff because of like James Lavelle and yeah. Ian Brown and things like that as well. And I really do think that like your musical taste kind of will, like you said, you emulate your heroes to an extent. And that, that jacket is from, 
what's the Ian Brown one? Keep what you've got. Is Keep it? what you got. Is the collab that, with that, no, that, that, that's, that's that one. Yeah, yeah. I've had lads stop me on the street in Dublin and ask yeah. me, like, I'll buy that off. I'll give you five hundred quid. And it wouldn't even cover what I paid for it. <laughs> Do yeah. you know what I mean? The video's wife directed or something. And, and something and like old, that. No Gallagher's in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. The collab yeah, yeah. that he played guitar on. But that's yeah. right. Yeah, great tune. It's one of my most coveted pieces. Coveted. You have many, many like the Adidas track two tops now. Do you have it? I kind of fell out of it a bit. Um, yeah, I was hardcore around the same time you would have been, kind of like in the mid noughties and then I kind of just not lost the lover but they just weren't making stuff that I liked anymore yeah. remember they released a Dublin one I remember you were yeah, the, for that but they didn't like the colours of it the it blue like, and orange yeah, and I got orange. it and I didn't like the fit of it and That's I sold right. it to a friend of ours to, I sold it to Brian I, I, Brian gave it to me and I remember trying it on but it didn't there was something about the fit of it it just no. didn't fucking like they had the weird. shoes that matched it the Adidas Dublin was in the same colour they were blue yeah. with orange stripes that, like did, that. that didn't make any sense it was like who the fuck were they bleeding like who were they asking in Adidas about like let's make a Dublin <laughs> you know, thing, and then they blue were, and orange, blue and orange. You're like, oh, that means nothing. You yeah. know what I mean? It's not even like yeah. it's not. Even, they didn't have to do like you know, it's county colours, which I go like, what the fuck? But um, I'm kind of the same with the Adidas tops. There's a kind of there's a weird thing that happens with them. I always wore them just because they never. And we were chatting about like Adidas. So it's supposed to be. This is probably what we knew we'd talk about. Uh, they are kind of a quality thing. It is a consumer item, you know what I mean? Like, mm. But they are a quality thing that basically lasts over time. You know, whereas like if you buy some sort of t-shirt in a crap shop or whatever like that, you get three, four wears out before the mm. thing falls apart. Like, But it's like any of these things. So like they, they stand the test of time, they hold up. But I found that there can be an infantilizing aspect of wearing when I'd walk into a rehearsal room. If I walked in with a tracksuit top. They'd prejudge you. Or they treat you different. And I did it as a kind of little social experiment. I start wearing shorts. Okay. And they were not like fucking short and tight, but just, yeah. you know, a far short or something like uh-huh. that. And not shoes, far short and jeans. People wouldn't kind of be as like, you know, there's an infantilizing aspect that happens by wearing them. Obviously, me and you or anybody of our generation no. wouldn't give a fuck. Mm. It's like, oh, you're wearing a sexy top. That's actually quite nice because it's all from the music element of it. Like mm-hmm. the DJs you listen to, the bands we listen to, it's actually a cultural thing because it kind of became the uniform of the music and the life that we were living or leading in, in that time. But whereas then I'd be going from, you know, they were perfect for wearing the raves or whatever, or going into fucking gigs. But then, and now you've sold out. You've grown up, man. Yeah, well, no, like fucking. <laughs> but then when you walk into a rehearsal room, thinking like, you know, it's two different worlds. It's weird, but and especially walking in with quite a working class Dublin accent as well. That was the thing. You know what actually happened to me? I won't say who it was, right? But ten years ago, I was doing press for Sarah and Steve, and I walked into the room in RT, in an RT radio station to do an interview with somebody, and I had an uh, tracksuit top on, and there was a conversation about class which is fucking a minefield anytime you talk about it. You know, what is it? Who is it? Blah, blah, blah. And the DJ, the person in question, uh, said, he goes, something, something about it. I goes, it's about preconceived conceptions that people would have. And he went, and yes, you wore a tracksuit top into this interview. Anyway, we're coming back and wow. then he moved on. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, what? I goes, what fuck? What the fuck is that going to do? Because he thought there should be, it was kind of like he took it as a mark of disrespect that I walked into the studio with a tracksuit top on. Whereas in my mind, I was thinking to myself, nobody can see me except mm. you. But he thought that, like some people, you know, to show up to work or whatever, like, you know, there is a code of dress to mark respect for whatever it is we're doing and you need to do that. You know, a lot of these things are all like, it's kind of unwritten rules of social engagement, but like... Whereas you and I would have been like, there's 500 of these in the yeah, world, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. I have one of them and one of them in a wardrobe at home that I'm probably never going to wear. Yeah, 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 Fuck yeah. you. This thing is fucking gold-plated, man. <laughs> Do you have any idea what I'm wearing? Yeah, yeah. But going back to that time, like when I first got to know you and then I said, I remember the Fraser phrase thing coming out. I was like, oh, yeah. that's that Emma Curvin fella. And I remember watching it. It was like you hanging out with Louis Walsh and Colin Farrell, who was like yeah, the yeah. sexy poster boy of Irish acting at the time. And yeah. Bosco and all that. How did that come about? Actually, one of my favourite lines from that is you sitting on the steps with a gaggle of Irish models like, and Sarah Morrissey from the Liberties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what that was? That was actually yeah, the Rock the Vote thing. Um, that was run by Paddy Cosgrave. He runs the Web Summit. And uh, a mate of ours, you remember Mick Reddy? Yes. Mick Reddy was working on it and Lorcan Fox. And essentially what it was, we wanted to get a lot of politicians in interviews and kind of um, do a kind of like, your man Lorcan had a kind of idea for a kind of a character he wanted to call Fraser. But I was saying, I goes, you could basically do a kind of Ali G thing. Mm. You know, fucking, it was very, what's it? <laughs> 
was just you know it was that it was kind of like the um, Alan Partridge kind of thing like here's a character you know Alan mm-hmm. Partridge does the your man calf or whatever yeah um, it was kind of like right what would be the most extreme version of my character if oh, you know I never fucking kind of like walked outside my block mm. you know what I mean and Tala and just like never learned anything and fucking you know I basically just maintained exactly who I was at the age of 14 but now I had to talk to a lot of politicians so we thought we could get a lot of politicians you know get them give them a chance to get their message across but then also at the same time take the piss out of them mm-hmm. um, Ali G still most of them hopefully not knowing yeah, that what the not, premise was that, that I'm not an intern blah 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 that just didn't happen the politicians were actually more clever than the celebrities okay politicians just were like we're not doing that like they fucking could sniff it out mm. when people think Irish politicians fucking here, but they were smart and they were media savvy enough not to get brass eyed, you mm, know what I mean? Like, and yeah. like that, we were kind of hoping, like, it's like scripts and all written. So, essentially, then it was just kind of like they said, Look, we need content for the website, so can you just even kind of do kind of mock interviews with the celebrities? And that was how it happened. You know? Asking Bosco, does Ask, he ever get out of his box? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's got like people are going, Oh, did you not go back to doing it? Like, but I kind of, I don't know, I kind of, I, I felt that there was like something like you're laughing at something from, from the inside out. You know, so it's like me doing a version of myself if I was like, like your man, uh, like I was saying, what's it, Pauline Calf and it's Paul Calf. I was like, he's laughing at a version of himself or whatever, like what he would have become. But I kind of thought it was just a bit, I don't know, I just, that kind of working class buffoonery kind of thing. Mm. I'd see other people doing it, like Damo and Ivor or fucking, you know, like Mrs. Brown's boys or something. You know, I was just kind of going, ah, fuck, I'm not adding to that, mm. if that makes sense, you know, that kind of way. So the next thing I did was like it did it because it was fun and we had the opportunity it was for the election it was supposed to be for politicians but that didn't work out so everyone was like do you want to do more of this I was like no I said I don't actually want to kind of compound or add to another kind of fucking you know he's a type you know I was playing a character so maybe he was an archetype in a sense because he's based on me but I didn't want other people to think I was doing a stereotype so I kind of moved away from it so the next thing I wrote was Sarah and Steve which was the complete opposite of that and what happened was RT and stuff were quite like, you know, they kind of wanted it to be a bit more like the Fraser phrase thing. And I was going, no, look, I said, these characters are actually not, these characters are the exception. They're not the rule. So the rule is that most of the people growing up in these kind of places are actually quite normal. So I said, like, I was, it'd be actually a lot better TV if you just did two characters that were just quite normal. And, uh, and that was actually one of the things people were like going, they don't sound like that from Tala. <laughs> and I was like, but both of us are from Tala. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so what's happening was people kind of had a, a preconceived kind of idea of accent and how people should sound, you know? So, Interesting. Yeah. Which came first, Sarah and Steve or your appearance in Fair City? Oh, Sarah and Steve. Sarah and Steve. Did. Yeah, yeah. Predated yeah. it by how long? Uh, three years. Really? Yeah. Jeez, I didn't, what's the Sarah and Steve was 2009, am I right? Or? 2009, going into 10, yeah. And I was working on... I was working on kind of a second series kind of that and that all fell through. The first city thing was a fucking, yeah, like, it, it's it been forgotten mm-hmm. that I did it and I'm glad it has. <laughs> you haven't been typecast as. You, yeah, well, like, you know, like, it's fucking. I only know one person that I've ever spoken to and it's because she's a maniac for watching things like that and when Dublin Old School started to blow up on the play circuit on the, like, the live drama circuit, she was like, Oh yeah, Emma Curvin. I remember him from he was such and such in Fair City, and I was yeah. thinking you're the only person that's ever said that to me. But that's you know yeah, ever yeah. remembered it as that, and you're kind of lucky that you escaped that kind of. Well, I knew I was like that. Was, that was a uh, look. M- nearly every actor, and I mean every actor in Dublin has done it, um, and it fucking paid the bills for like you know because things get things get quite tight, and that's the thing. People actors don't talk about money enough. You know what I mean? Mm. You know, so they all just kind of believe they go, "How the fuck is all these fuckers?" living and getting away with things you know that was like came at a time when I did not that I hadn't got other work but I needed money to pay rent because I had to move gaff and fucking all this kind of shit was coming up and they said look there's, there's five weeks do you want to do it and I kind of just went yeah you know I was right let's, let's mm, fucking you see know, what it's about see what it's about right and like agents are mad to kind of push for it because like it's money for them but essentially it's money for all rope because they don't once you're in it they still get a check. Mm. See you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like... They're your pimp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's a weird one because like if you do a job and then you go five years into a, into a, into a sitcom, not sitcom, 
What's the that? Serial, the serial soap opera thing, whatever. They'll get a check for all the time you're in that. No way. It's not just, do you know what I mean? It's, like so, a, it's, not, it's not like just a one-off finder's fee. It's a so running for thing. agents to get an actor into a soap opera is a fucking bonanza. That's an interesting so one. they will kind of be like, oh, there's a job coming up. And you're <laughs> just like, so... And and um, and the, and the, the the other side of that is you can't audition for other things because you're in that all the time, mm-hmm. you know. And it's kind of it's very insular because they, one thing they will say about it, they work incredibly hard. Like they fucking break their bollocks. The actors, they do rehearsals, but what happens? Is they do rehearsals in the Monday and then they shoot four episodes Tuesday to Friday, four episodes. Jesus. But you're getting through like you know hundreds of pages of dialogue. It takes them six months to write the show. But then you're only given three minutes to rehearse it before Jesus. you do it. So so much work goes into the planning of it. There's, there's a story, the story department. Then there's a script department. Then there's like the production department. All this kind of thing. But it's fucking wild. Like it's like kind of like, you know, yeah. Look, I won't say too much about it. But yeah. I I kind of just went. I said, I goes, this is one of those things that I noticed people started on the street going, and it, like they wouldn't actually say it, and they just go, like they it's like they lose all control, or like they go. Fishy, 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 and like as if like they have some sort of fucking you know involuntary response yeah, to seeing like, someone off the telly, and it just goes yeah, and you forget like that if you're in someone's television every day, mm-hmm. there is that kind of like they don't know how they know you, and they kind of it's very particular. It's mostly taxi drivers are bloke was driving a truck and he stopped it like and jammed on in the middle of traffic, and fucking shouted across the road like I don't even know how he see me in his cab. He was that high up. I was in a passenger seat of a car. I was in the passenger seat of a car and he leaned across and he's like, yeah, watch out for him. He's a fucking bollocks. And, like, <laughs> and my missus was just like, what? You know, and I was like, oh, this is mental. Yeah. And, um, and this is just Fair City. This isn't like Carnation East End, Carnation Street East Enders like level that. stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of so like, they, what happened? Yeah. They rewrote the character at one stage and it was supposed to be becoming addicted to drugs or something like that. But they said, no, that's really more of a storyline for love hey mm. so they rewrote all of the scripts on the Monday night and the next morning I had to come in and I had to relearn the lines to about 16 scenes and I just went I can't do anything with this there's no acting involved in this this is like you're just a vessel for their yeah it, well it's like it goes, there's no rehearsal so it goes there's no nuance here there's no um, there's no acting here this is literally just going to be me trying my best to remember the lines in it so that's what I mean by the actors in it work incredibly hard but they get no time to do what they do. So that's why, like, I've nothing but respect for the actors in it because, like, they fucking break their bollocks and they're ploughing through the lines. But the one thing it does, it, it, it gives you an ability to always learn lines. But I kind of went, I kind of noticed, I was like, I get out of this now because if I don't... You're going to get stuck. I'll get stuck. And also, people need to forget that a minute. <laughs> but uh, what they did was, this is, you, you like this, this is a good one. They, they, my character left and then um, I was at a festival and I met someone at who runs the show and I was like I seen them go towards I was like oh no I was like and they're going oh, how are you? They go, we're thinking of bringing you back in, in thing and I was like I was locked so I didn't want to like be having a conversation like in a professional capacity at a festival I was like oh yeah yeah I could be around later in the year and I ran away like, and <laughs> I told me I'm not going back tonight and he goes alright cool so instead of bringing me back they replaced my character with another actor same name like he was playing my character <laughs> he was 15 years younger than me no way so they brought him in and I had a younger brother in it but they never explained how I had become 15 years younger and we're now I was now no longer the younger brother I was now no longer the older brother I was younger brother to your man they that's just, mental they just didn't explain it. but you know what's worse the audience didn't even cop on <laughs> you know what I mean like, so I think there's been three actors it's like yeah like Nick in Carnation Street there's yeah. been a number like, I remember there was like this pin up guy Adam Woodyat or whatever back in the day this blonde haired muscular fellow oh, like, yeah, they, yeah. Remember that? and then they brought in your man from Dream Team off Sky 1 who looks nothing like him right, but, yeah, yeah. but they, at least they followed the age thing you know yeah, I'm yeah. giving myself away as a secret closet Carnation Street fan here it's just me man to have so watching the, the gaff growing up you yeah, know yeah yeah there's a guy there's another actor who'll remain nameless but I know he he's playing a character who right now should be 52 but when they brought him he like he replaced another actor when they brought him in he was like 15 years younger or something like that or 18 years younger That's than gas. Thing. but it's mad but look the thing is as well with like dramas like that if you get a bad not a bad storyline but if you get a storyline where you become a villain or something like that mm. um, it's not it's not actual fame it's just notoriety you'll get like 
get you get dogs abuse in the street, like mm. you know what I mean, like bad, like you know people would be fucking shouting at you, you know what I mean, like so. It's just not worth it. It's just funny what you say about public perception on the street because that's something we spoke about before we got here and as I was going to tell you this story that like one of the last times I really remember seeing you was on Abbey Street came out of a gig in the Twisted Pepper and I remember you bouncing across the road like Tigger out of Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Royster, Royster, what's the story? And I was like, all right, what's crack? And I had a friend of mine with me who had never met you and we were going to an after party somewhere and I remember walking up the road and we were chatting and you got pulled away by somebody and you were there chatting away and I remember my mate nudging me with an elbow and going, here, is that your man Turbo Minty Fresh off the telly? Right? And I just looked at him and I was like, yeah, that's Kerman. Like, and he was so, and he was like, fucking hell. Do you know what I mean? And he was yeah, so yeah. blown away by that. And I was just there going like, you know, this fellow who's saying this to me is my mate. Yeah. You're my mate. And they're going like, I just didn't view you like that. Because I knew that's what you did and that was your thing. But to people outside of that bubble, I would have never experienced anyone behaving like that around you before. And I just thought it was hilarious because he was so starstruck by you at 3am on Abbey Street, bouncing around, going, right, we're going to this after party, it's going to be deadly. And then he's just like, that's your man after Teddy. And he can't believe it. Like, do you know what I mean? And it was just like, will you introduce me? And I was like, yeah, just relax. Be cool. Do you know what I mean? It's not Tom Cruise. It's just scripty from Tala. Relax. You know what I'm saying? the crack but um, like Sarah and Steve I really would have kind of cemented you I suppose Fair City would have had a loyal viewership whereby people would have seen you on the street and they would have had a thing did you notice any difference in your public life or how you were perceived after Sarah and Steve did that add anything to that or any difference um, that was kind of like what happened was I made that and then I went travelling for a while and I came back just as it was on to do the, the publicity for it <clears throat> and what happened was they, they threw it on in a kind of mad time Um because they didn't know where to put it kind of in the schedule they put it on at like 11 o'clock at night so I was like kind of thinking oh, loads of people stay up to 11 o'clock at night loads of students <laughs> and like fucking they'd be like me people to go oh yeah show's on too late you know what I mean I can't and the player wasn't even really up and running at that stage the RT player so yeah like a lot of young people if I was walking down the street in town like and I mean like people that were in secondary school people that were in their 20s it kind of would have had a, 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 a change of perception with them Adults or people in the industry didn't give a flying fuck. You know mm. what I mean? They were just like, Sarah and what? You did a what thing? <laughs> Gives a fuck. You know what I mean? Like they're like and like I never really expected it to kind of do any kind of thing. But what's happened now is like last night I was doing a gig here in Waterford and um, I was doing a poetry gig and I went down to get food for myself and the missus afterwards and I met a couple and they were like, fucking that way. It was like not not up no scale, they were like Sarah and Steve. And I was like, alright, and I kind of just tested, I was like what age are you? I'm like 24. Both of them. So th- what's happening now is there's a load of people who obviously would have watched the show when they were 14, 15, 16 because it was that kind of time of night. It went on to YouTube then so they were like the, obviously the early adopters. Mm. But the people that would have watched the majority of the things that they watch on YouTube. And so there's a whole kind of generation now it's actually changed the perception for them of, of me now if that makes sense. But in terms of the industry it didn't really because because it was so low foy, the the only thing that kind of like separated it apart was really the, well, I hope it was, was the writing and the acting. Mm. But a lot of people would have just dismissed it offhand because it was a sequel to Dan Bex, which was the same. The, 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 the Dave Coffey wrote it with me and he directed it. The Sarah and Steve, but our one was more because I'm from the playwriting background. We wrote it more as a narrative. There was a, you know a full story. So if you watched all ten of them, you got kind of like a little novella. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like a little like small novel that's basically separated over ten episodes, which was the whole idea of it. But a lot of people would have just come to like the first episode or something like that and just like went, "What is it? They're just talking to camera. I'm not watching this." So you know, it didn't. In some ways. It didn't have any kind of impact if you didn't watch it. No one gave a shit. But anybody that did watch it was usually quite not respectful of it. But it kind of got that and like it's what's a cult following. But it did get an actual cult following because I get people coming up doing like uh, quotes, which is really mm. nice. You know, full line kind of like quoting out things to me, like you know. And I like was, said the turbo minty fresh thing. Yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like that. You know, what I was like, it was funny because I was going, "Great, this has made a kind of an impression on you, but on a wider audience, it hasn't." And that's that's the mad kind of thing you know what I mean some things you kind of make and they really do just have a niche audience you know that kind of way I've seen a lot of interviews and listened to a lot of podcasts and stuff you've done in the past and one thing that I've never heard brought up right and doesn't probably mean anything to you or to people who are speaking to you is it, but one of your main claim to fame is I don't know anybody else who's been shot up by Tom Hardy oh yeah 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 <laughs> the take that was fucking great crack that was a blast man yeah that was um, 
the Martina Cole mm-hmm. crime she, writer kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, she writes these books and like literally proper fucking churns them out. Like, but they're all bestsellers. Taxi drivers read them by the fucking dozen low. My lads read them all. They're kind of like your man Jordan Peterson. Not Jordan. He's the the guru fella. Patterson is a like a crime writer novel. You know what I mean? Like mm. they're these kind of books that are in the airport and people will fucking read it on the plane. You know, going over and by the pool or whatever. But yeah, they made they made the thing, and I knew him because of Star Trek, and I knew him because I'd seen him in something else. But um, they were shooting it in London, and they were going to give the part to a London actor. But the because I could do the accent, your woman said, "Look, I'm going to give it to you." It's the casting actor. And I was like, "Nice one," but I didn't realise the size of the scale of it. And it was when Sky One just started doing their new big budget things. But mm. yeah, it rocked on set. I knew the other actor. I'd done a film with him, Sean Evans. Was that Sean Evans? He um he done the movie uh, he done, we done a movie with him called the, the Boys and Girls from County Clare mm-hmm. with Andrea Carr and fucking Colin Meaney. It was a mental <laughs> I think it was a fucking tax dodge. It got, <laughs> got made in bleeding, it got made in the Isle of Man. It was a fucking like it was wild. It was one of the last kind of films that were made on well I made on thirty five millimeter. Yeah. Before everything went to digital. So yeah, I walked on set because we had to do a rehearsal day and there's Tom Hardy and he's like he, he just done Bronson yeah. so he was he, a beast he's a beast because when we were on set he had like a, a, an early camera phone because like it would have been 09 or 08 or something mm. like that and he had an early camera phone and he was showing me a picture he really like he's very like nice to talk to mm. and very personable and very chatty a lot of actors would be very much kind of like they'd stand sit there and stand off and say nothing but I remember him showing a picture of the Bronson thing he was huge and he was saying I'm after slimming down but he's like his his physicality is that kind of thing of like a like a bulldog, you know, mm. it's like a fucking taut spring, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like that when he's acting as well. So, yeah, we did like we did a lot. Of, some of the scenes got cut, but it was a nice like little kind of. It was three days, but um, but yeah, he's like he's firing all the time. You know what I mean? You can see the cogs working in his head when you're working with him. And he was a gent because the way he do those kind of things is proper like I don't know if you're playing Red Dead Redemption or something you know like you fucking the old dynamite blowing up the train tracks mm-hmm. like, you actually push a little box down yeah push, with TNT yeah, with t- yeah 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 like fucking Acme you know what I mean what's it like the Roadrunner no, no, really. they they give you three jackets so you've only got three shots of it so he lifts me up puts me onto the table and then when I'm on the table they bring in all the like apparatus but it's literally like a wooden box of three switches like something from the 70s mm. and switch one switch two and then three and the thing blows up so of course they fucking he shoots me Tom Hardy shoots me in the thing and they forgot to give me fucking earplugs and it's like <laughs> beep, like the beginning of Bleeding Saving Private Ryan fucking out of set but he's like hey I get him you know you remember I, I'm just kind of remembering all this now but he's like get him fucking earplugs and my legs are kind of hanging off and he goes so hold, you stay there mate I'll be back in a second and he went off and got like a box put it under my foot like you know and just a real accommodating mm. gentleman very nice guy very uh, he was. I remember he was telling he was writing something at the time with his dad which would have become oh yeah that I know the thing you're talking about like I, I can't think of the name of it he was on yeah. the BBC there a while That's, ago yeah, yeah so like I mean that was 2009 so he was back, he was, he's a writer that far back but um, and I actually I remember him saying as well like we were talking about the gangster thing he goes he goes I'm not from this he goes there's some actors like pretend like that they are he goes I'm not from this like, he mm-hmm. goes I'm, I grew up in a in a nice place like you know what I mean he goes but I get played these parts you know yeah. they give me these kind of tough guy parts but obviously because he's fucking the physicality <laughs> he has but that is that that's an idea though as well that, like Meyerhold is a is a Russian kind of a proponent of physical theatre he would have came at the same time as Stanislavski and he has this kind of idea the actor is the actor is athlete and you know it's it's something that like a lot of actors are really good at you know what I mean they train in a way that athletes do in order to be able to kind of do roles that or transform themselves you know but yeah no he's he's a lovely fella and yeah I got shot <laughs> but um and that rave that was actually that, that was the big thing it was only like a two it, was, it wasn't even it was a 30 second scene and there was 200 extras wow and I was behind the decks and it was like they, they shot it in the yard they shot it with the same place we had actually the where Dublin Old School had its um, unit base and uh, I remember walking into a place one day on the set and I was like, oh, 
I goes, look at this man, this is mad. And they had all like leaves coming down through the seal and these big vats. And I went, Jesus, you couldn't set dress this. And then one of the fellas looks at me and goes, this is a set. I was like, oh, all right, grab shy. <laughs> I thought it was like an abandoned part of the John Flair Blue factory. That, yeah. like, I was like, overgrown. They, they really struck gold at this room, didn't they? Look, it looks fucking overgrown, like apocalyptic. And he's like, no, man, we made it look like that. You know, the, 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 the set dresser, fucking well pissed off. You mentioned there about Tom Hardy and him writing stuff and like that and of course that is another string to your bow you're not just an actor you're a writer you're a poet you know all the rest that goes with it what's your writing process like do you find it hard to find time in your day like do you have to have a set time that you work to or is it just whenever you feel the inspiration yeah like writing writing is like I was, I was talking to you know some people at quite a Q&A last night kind of there was a lot of writers there and the writers are always kind of really interested about everybody else's process and you know there's loads of books on it how to do it some people Stephen King has that book you know on writing and there's a lot of writers believe like you get up you sit down at the typewriter for three hours you bash it out regardless of whatever it is and then you move on you know you do something else you spend your afternoons reading or watching TV or you know kind of like consuming other stuff with me it's it's kind of different because uh, you know I find I can't do that like Sylvia Plath used to wake up in the morning time you know and write poetry just before her children woke up because it was the only time she could um, you know other writers are like that but I'm not a morning person so I usually have to kind of wake up and get going so what happens is I have to take time out completely from acting or from doing anything to get something done you know Um, so like I and I always kind of fool myself into thinking I did a play during the summer and in I went to London so I was was doing a show in the Domar Warehouse and I thought to myself right I can I can get something written while I'm here but just the 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 fucking the logistics of actually doing a play how much cognitive reasoning and ability it takes up and how much of your creative part of your mind which you only have a certain amount your brain's only firing for a certain amount of like concentrated uh, uh, time in a day it's like roughly around four hours for people who are in the, this kind of industry or professional industries an hour for everybody else where they can kind of be creative so if there's anything else going on in your life, like a job that you have to do, you have to break up your day, it's almost impossible, I find, you know what I mean, to do it. So what I do is I, I take time out. So like a, there's a possibility I might be writing a TV series, but I have to kind of like say to the producers and the TV company, I need to know that this is happening. Mm. Because if I do take on this job, I'll have to take three months off from doing anything else. So I'd literally have to sit there, you know, a good solid fucking like you know five hours a day doing it um, I read books at the same time continually I turn off or try to turn off all phones all gadgets because that's another thing you know Stephen King said he, he grew up in a time when he didn't have a TV until he was nine and he said he was probably one of the last generations of Americans that grew up like that now he wrote that book in 2000 so I'd love to know what he thinks about smartphones and fucking <laughs> the internet because it's a constant kind of thing of like vying for your attention, you know? Like I know I have, to, I have to do reward systems as well. So if I get two pages done and two pages in a day is actually quite an achievement. This is like for a, like a play now or a film script. Uh, then you can play a computer game. You know, it's kind of mm. tricking. It's about tricking future self yeah. into doing something. Poetry is a lot more, it's a lot tougher. And the show that I did for the gate earlier on in the year I, I, that was kind of all consuming and what's happened to me is like I have to find a better way of working because every time I write I get sick Okay. I get run down I actually get like fucking I have this kind of thing in my stomach that only comes back if I'm run down so I get I, I was getting ill from writing which would doesn't make sense you'd think you'd get ill from doing a job that was physically extraneous it's probably uh, because your power is going into the page like something from the X-Men so yeah well like <laughs> Your mutant power yeah, is yeah, yeah. just great sounds, script. Like it sounds wanky at all. Like, and I, like any time you talk about process or anything like that, I think you always kind of you can sound like a fucking toss out. <laughs> uh, I know another actor said this. Like they said, they go, they were as her friends a writer, and they said you've only written one play, and she said, well, the last one nearly fucking killed me, and I kind of know what that means. Like, like old school, the play took nine months to write, and that was, I took the time off to do that. And that did nearly kill me as well, you know what I mean? Like, that was fucking, like, I got a lump on my hand. Jesus. Um, from it. And 
there's a lot of kind of things to it because like it's it's going to be presented, it's going to be shown, and as well as that, like you, you kind of when you write things as well, like because the way the internet works, like you know, there's always cunts out there that are fucking gonna have a go. Not in theatre, but like if you do something like Heartbreak and then you put it online, you have to deal with all that as well. Yeah. So you know when you're writing something like you're being truthful, but you know you're gonna get you're gonna get static for that truth. You're gonna get some fucking cunt saying something to you. So you know that can be a kind of worrying thing and then you're worried about whether or not it's going to be liked or blah 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 so you know it's quite a stressful thing but as I was saying last night to someone they said why do you write like what's the compulsion behind it I said well actually it's kind of like a release if I don't write anything I become depressed but as soon as I get something out as soon as I write something and I'm finished it there's a a release you know Mm. that kind of way like it's done now I've done that and I had it and it was in me and now it's out of me you know that kind of way but um, I write when I can I wrote a radio play last year. This was the thing for the BBC? Yeah, I was writing for the BBC. So I wrote, wrote one draft and the first draft of anything takes fucking ages. Like a real long time, a long time thinking about it, blah, blah, blah. You know, and like radio plays are an odd kind of thing as well because they have a very dedicated listenership but essentially it is an art form that's, it's an older form of art, like writing form, you know, it's not like as widespread obviously as television, sorry. But when you do it, it kind of goes off into the ether. But, um, I was doing a show the beginning of the year I flew from New Year's Day I flew to Sydney to do Riot in Sydney then I flew back to Dublin to go to Vancouver um, to do Dublin All School and then yeah so I was like I basically traversed the entire world like I went from Sydney to Vancouver like the furthest you could go in the course of like a day and a half two days so I wrote the second draft and the third draft of the radio play Amazing. On the plane, and I well believe that because like Margaret Atwood said that like that the planes and trains are great. I get more stuff done after six o'clock and at the weekends than I do during the day because of the omnipresent fucking thing of emails. <laughs> if I hear a phone going off, I get anxious. If my phone rings, I don't go. Oh, it's like it's something something to do at work because mates don't ring you. They mm. WhatsApp you or they fucking email you. So you're kind of constantly answering emails and te- like basically telling people to fuck off because, <laughs> you know, and you're kind of going, look, I've allocated this time to write something, you know. So um, you get more done in a quiet space, like in a, in a retreat or something like that in a week than you would in anything. Like there's, the, there's a book called Deep Work where your man talks about like, you know, how to get stuff done and, you know, really taking time to get in the groove and to get in the flow of something. And you have to have absolutely no... Distraction. Distractions. But if you turn off your phone and you're not available to people in the industry or whatever, even like family and friends, that can cause hassle. And you know what I mean? So trying to you have to try and find a balance between like fucking, you know, getting it done and not. I heard the, 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 sorry, that book Deep Work, there's a guy who wrote he bought an he bought a round trip ticket to Japan. Didn't stay in Japan, just flew from wherever, like somewhere either New York or the West Coast possibly. 18 hours to Japan got in the airport stayed there for 3 hours uh, jumped back on the plane or got a bit of kip or something like that maybe like when he got to Japan didn't see any of it and then jumped straight back in the plane and he wrote a book because there's no there's absolutely there's nothing else there's nowhere you can go there's nothing you can do you know what I mean the just only, total focus total focus you know what I mean there's, you can't actually talk to people so yeah so planes are fucking amazing but, um, but then again like don't get me wrong that's only second drafts and tour drafts Anyone ever tells you they wrote a play or a book in a, in a fucking two, three days, then it's shit. <laughs> you mentioned Heartbreak there and of course its predecessor just saying, did you expect the reaction that Heartbreak specifically got? Now, there was like four years or something between those. I remember when Just Saying first appeared and as amazing as your delivery is and just the way it's written and just everything about it, the real there's two real stars of the show for me as well as yourself. The soundtrack... Yeah, that ethereal sound that that really kicks off around the line of "use all fucked off" and it just changes. There's like there's notes that appear and it's like that's amazing. And the city itself looks the bollocks. Yeah, yeah, Dublin looks, looks incredible. What time of the night was that shot? At? Shot it over three nights, and that was Dave Twine who also did Dublin Old School. We shot it over three nights, so we went out one night specifically f- from rooftops. Hmm. So we cleared like the rooftop of the George the rooftop of City Hall, 
the rooftop of a number of other places I can't remember but like you know so that was just one night mm. of me walking no dialogue then the next two nights we had to wait until one o'clock in the morning so that the streets would be clear because if you throw a camera up in Dublin oh, yeah. it's like a fucking beacon. homing beacon to fucking and it doesn't matter what it is doesn't matter what you're saying people walk up and go is this love hey <laughs> no way you know, I was just like yeah mate it's a fucking skeleton crew of four people who are making a sequel to Love Hate but he, like, you know uh, crews say it all the time as well it's really you just see people like looking at cameras in the background you know like same thing with Dublin Old School so many of the shots in Dublin Old School are ruined because basically you're like oh this fucking scene's great this fucking scene's great they're like in the edit some dope well. is in the background fucking, they have to know some of them do it on purpose yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like one of the cameramen one night, like a bloke ran over and jumped into the shot, and he went, "Yeah, oh, my name's blah blah blah." And like the cameraman, like like obviously he'd been working on multiple movies around Dublin. He just fucking had it, and he goes, "What did you think was going to happen here? <laughs> you know, did you think you were going to come over? And we we're going to put you in it?" But uh, yeah, it's a bull. We did it over two nights, and then the last night we all jumped on the ferry and went off for, for the last scene. Head, for the last scene, and. We got a cabin. We all slept because we had like we'd stayed up till six in the morning. We all slept and then came home and then yeah, so, it was all done over three nights just before Christmas. Freezing, fucking freezing. We were. The reaction to heartbreak was immense. I can really remember the night that I went live and like it was just my newsfeed on Facebook was just full of people sharing. It was all like mutual mates of ours and just yeah. like the, you know the greater kind of like public. Then I remember almost kind of sitting there every couple of hours just refreshing to see how many views hit. It's on like one point five million on Facebook at, yeah, the, at the moment yeah. and like half a million on YouTube. Are you sick? You didn't put it on YouTube in the first place to get all that sexy ad money. Oh no! Well, fucking! I think they did put it up on YouTube. It's on Dave's account, so yeah, it is. But, but like <laughs> yeah, I say, it's yeah. only got like a, a third of the views on YouTube that it has on Facebook. Do now, you know so. what was happening though at that time? This is really boring kind of stuff. Like, but I think there's something Facebook kind of went went after YouTube and purposely stopped. I don't understand it now, but there was something where you couldn't embed. Okay. Videos or something like that. It wasn't Facebook. showing up like a shortcut that you could play. You, you couldn't. You'd had to click through and it'd take click through and, and then take yeah. it a thing. So I think I remember something about that. That. So that. That's why they kind of started their own video kind of thing because they're competing with them. So they kind of made it more difficult for YouTube. So whereas just saying got like half a million or something, Heartbreak would never have got those type of figures on YouTube because yeah yeah actually someone contacted me and they wanted to turn it into you know those other kind of videos they do where they have borders on them and they have the dialogue yes. Some some American company got in touch and said, "Can we take your video?" And I said, "Can you link people back mm. to our page?" And he said, "No, we'd take it, re-upload it, Good and look. repost it." And I was like, "For what?" Like, and they were like, "For the like exposure." We were like, "No, nah, you're grand." Yeah. It probably could have got like fucking I don't know to their kind of channels millions more views, but we were like, "No, nah, fuck off! You're not taking content we made for free." Yeah, and yeah. like you know, on my poetry and fucking making money out of you, brick. But like, heartbreak was obviously part of Riot. Uh, is that correct? That was like yeah, it yeah. Was it was one it was, of the three yeah. kind of spoken word parts of Riot. There was four. There was Sorry, four. Asked to do four poems that kind of framed modern Ireland, and I was given kind of a loose kind of idea of what kind of each section of the show would be like. And they said one of the sections of the show was going to be called Heartbreak, and they said, "Well, what would that be if it was Ireland?" And I was like, "Okay." So it kind of came about through that, like you know. Were you surprised by the reaction and how quickly it took off? Yeah, like I wasn't expecting anything from it really. I remember reading a comment from you at the time when you said that you had no point of reference for it and you had no real kind of like expectation. But then for something like that to just shoot off, like as I said, every few hours I was almost refreshing it just to see how many more hundred thousand views. I think it hit like a million within the first few days almost. Yeah, yeah, In a yeah, week or yeah, yeah. something. It was crazy. And then of course you ended up on The Late Late Show and yeah. just like it really kind of cemented you. I remember as well you being a talking head or a voiceover for some um, documentary that was on. I remember kind of sitting down and watching it and then like The Late Late Show thing happened and then heartbreak blew up or whatever like whatever timeline they all happened and I remember thinking Jesus Scripty is like the voice of a generation now these days this is hilarious you see you say things like that fucking like that that that, not with me but like other people gets their backs up they go this is fucking who and it's like I've never said that yeah no I know that I've never said that just just, as a a caveat like yeah Yeah. I've never said that clearly I'm not sitting here like licking your arse or anything I remember sitting there just going like that but do you feel because like You've been asked for comment and like you're on the late late talking about Leo Varadkar and stuff. You've been on the yeah. late late twice, am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once after Heartbreak and once after Dublin Law School came out, yeah. and um, like you're, you're there, kind of being questioned about socio-political, economic issues and things like that. How like does it feel weird for you to be like kind of not a spokesperson for the youth? I know you don't see yourself as that, but there are many people who do see you like that. Do you feel a pressure based on that, or do you think about it? 
No, like I, no, I, I, I genuinely don't like because if it did, like fucking, I think anything I'd say would be kind of compromised or whatever. Like you know, mm. so like when like we're here, this is kind of about stuff we like. It's about pop culture. Like this is what we're talking about. That's the stuff that interests us. But some people want to talk about politics on television. There is a kind of thing of and 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 polit- political shows. There's actually an element of them about self immolating yourself mm. on, on stage or on television. It's like here's a can of petrol, kid. Set yourself on fire. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they, they, there is there an aspect of that. Like you know, so they think they can get a fucking like a good soundbite or you said this thing this time. You know, and I think the main kind of drive about it is is to confound somebody's expectations about what they think you're going to say or how you're going to say it. So yeah, it just you know, it's just, if they want to talk about politics, it's like I have gotten. Someone was asking me about it, like you know, the work that it did. I started to go well, actually if I'm doing poetry you can either be about something or about nothing mm. and I think the more as I've gotten older you know what I mean I see like yeah possibly like obviously we all live in houses with running water and fucking electricity and it's not the you know the horrors of the 19th century there's no children you know on horseback with fucking no shoes and like but at the same time the poverty and the social inequality that has been experienced in this country is relative to the time in which we live in and the reason that I would be so kind of annoyed with kind of neoliberal parties like Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael is that these things are actually incredibly easy to solve and we can see that from Nordic countries and we can see that from other uh, liberal democracies in, in, in Europe. They're incredibly easy to solve but because of both the inaction of a political class and just the downright fucking crookedness of them they're not doing anything that's technically legal that'll ever get any of them fucking locked up but there is an absolute ideological impasse on their part that the thing that they need to do you know build houses themselves build broadband themselves they continually go back to the private market believing the private market will you know save them and us but the private market won't it's starting to turn against us in many respects and it's making more people homeless more people hungry and food banks are on the rise inequalities on the rise you know they go yeah you have a GDP but the majority of that money doesn't come it's not available to the people of Ireland it's something that comes into the country and comes straight back out again um, so you know these things are kind of quite they are they could be you know it, the frustration and the anger comes from that so on these kind of programmes they're so used to people not saying anything mm. because they're terrified kind of about what way it will affect their career and possibly it has, it has affected my career maybe I don't know yet but if you're an actor you are dependent on somebody else continually to give you work if you're a writer or a curator of your own work it can free you up because essentially you don't really have to rely on anyone else so that kind of fear of am I going to work again stops becoming a fear because you're like well I'll just fucking make my own thing you know what I mean like, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. there's a freeing up of that and it is as well it's the older you get you just stop giving a fuck do you know because of how impassioned you've come across like speaking publicly and on TV has there been any approaches by any political party or any kind of I was asked to speak at one political party's um, conference and I was asked to speak I was asked to kind of like do something and I just said no just fuck that because like and I was glad then because I seen I, I, I had no intentions of doing it you know one of my mates just went he goes don't do that he said why and he goes now this this is a, a, a historical analogy and I am in no way saying that I am like any of these individuals or I have the career of any mm. of these individuals. He goes, remember fucking Cool Britannia? He goes, remember Tony Blair inviting fucking Oasis and all these heads into a gaff and then four years later, Tony Blair was fucking bombing Iraq? And he goes, that's that's what happens, man. You mm. know what I mean? Like, you know, the best intentions. And like a lot of kind of fucking celebrities, Irish celebrities supported Labour going into the 2011 election, wanting them to win. They got a huge majority and then they turned around and fucking did the exact same thing that Fine Gael did. And anybody basically that wound up supporting them was just left an egg in their face. So I'm not saying I won't support the political party in the future, but right now at this moment in time, it's better for me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a patron of a drug rehabilitation clinic called Fast in Finglas. And I've been helping Anna Liffey, uh, a drugs project about like, you know, drug decrim. So, you know, a lot of people are lobbying government at this moment in time to, you know, not just decriminalise drugs the way they have in Portugal, but to decriminalise users. So if they want me to help them, that NGO, like to kind of get that message across, whatever kind of modicum of celebrity I have, to kind of just, 
open the conversation out and go, well, look, he's talking about it. So, and the media are fucking, they're like, you know, like the, the take back the city thing, you know, like the, I support that like 100%. I was away in London, I have nothing to do with it. But I support them and I tweeted about it. Fucking uh, news talk rang me up and asked me to go on and talk about it. And I was like, what the fuck are you asking me to go on and talk about it for? Get someone from Take Back the City. Mm. And then uh, Marion Finucane had Paddy uh, Cosgrove, the, he runs the Web Summit. He went to one thing and they had him on it. They didn't have the people that are organising it, you know what I mean? So that's, it's a fucking shit thing. It's like basically something that Irish media does if somebody's like in the fucking, if somebody is, uh, uh, you know, has a film out or something like that and they have political views, they'll get that person on, not the actual person who's fucking pushing or agitating for the thing, you know, the people they should be talking to. So with Anna Liffey, you know, they asked me just like, look, would you lend your voice to this so we can kind of get the conversation going? And the right newspapers do go, oh, mm. such and such was at it, well then. So it's like, um, but the difference is, these are more kind of, you know, yeah, it's it's not kind of like uh, like a lot of people that do for, like charity or whatever. But I am interested in kind of like I don't know helping where they can if we can. You know what mm. I mean? Like that's that's part of it. You mentioned the film there, of course, very much the current feather in your cap. And I know we're tight for time. No, I kind no. of feel like the arse has been talked out of Dublin Old School at this stage. The amount of interviews and yeah, cover yeah, yeah, things yeah, yeah, of yeah. Sunday paper magazines. You've done, like you know how many times have you told the story behind the inspiration of you know meeting your brother yeah, in London yeah, yeah. and things like that? So we're not going to get into that. But I remember one thing after I saw it and I texted you about it and I said I don't know how many people are going to say this to you like when they're licking your arse and telling you how great it is or whatever that. But the look of it, the money, and you wrote back to me and you said about the money that you was spent on the lenses for the bokeh yeah uh, that, like, like yeah, yeah. talk to me really quickly about that about how much effort went into creating that look for the bokeh for anyone who doesn't know is like the background and how it's blurred out there were some scenes there in alleyways off uh, Henry Street and it looked like yeah. an acid trip it was so kind of focused on a character you know it's, it, it, basically what happens is like modern cameras like the reason why digital wouldn't really work in the early days of digital was because everything was in focus so it's all got to do with the lens and essentially the way the human eye sees is like it has things in the foreground that are in focus and the background's out of focus so people like that and the eye notices this is just basic camera stuff you know this we know this, but, uh, or most people probably know it but anyway I remember Dave Tynan saying you know I was going about we skimped on something else and he said no we did that because we needed those lenses so you get the camera the camera is worth like X amount it's a digital camera uh, and then the lenses are the things that are fucking you know really really like I was actually I met I was out at a play on Tuesday night and I met one of the guys who was part of the camera crew and the opening chase in um, the old school was actually done on a skateboard so um, the camera guy is a professional skateboarder mm-hmm. now we didn't tell fucking anyone else about this so I don't think sure knew about it basically I start running he start running with the camera on his shoulders while skateboarding. <laughs> but this thing was like, he goes, it nearly fell one stage. And he goes, how much is the camera? And he goes, fuck the camera. And he goes, the lens was like nearly 30 grand. <laughs> so I, was like, I was like, oh Jesus. Don't tell the Irish film board. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was actually, well, I think it was JJ's, like it was his, it was his actual lens. But yeah, the lenses are the things. Because essentially the, the, the box is more or less the same. And that's literally what they are. Mm. The actual cameras, like a lot of them, like the reds or the Lexias are just boxes. Mm-hmm. It's just the cameras you get on them. But, you know, if people are out there and they're trying to make their own things, like cheap lenses, as long as they're fast, mm. like a, a 50 mil uh, 1.8 Canon, it's like 80 quid. And it's like, it's a, it's a fixed lens and it's like, you can make it and look fucking brilliant. The nifty know? 50 as yeah, it's known yeah, in the yeah. business. If it all ended tomorrow, what's been your proudest accomplishment of your career so far? Would you say Dublin Old School and taking it from the pen and paper to the silver screen or is there something else that you're kind of a little bit more proud of secretly in yourself? Um, yeah, I think, I think bringing it, bringing it from where it went all the way to the national stage in Britain and the f- Saturday night on stage in Britain, in uh, uh, in London, on the national th- in the National Theatre, and half the audience were Irish, and most of them are people who would have emigrated just after the crash. So the story is kind of about them, like these were our friends and stuff like that, mm. and people we would have known from t- 2000 to 2008 who then had to leave. And the way the Dorfman Theatre is is theatre it's made it's a four story it looks like a spaceship and the sound system is amazing in it and theatre can be quite staged you know people don't kind of react in a way that's like a concert where they go literally you know standing in that kind of like 500 seater theatre looking up into the stand and I could see all these faces of people that you know we used to party with like in, in Dublin and kind of friends and loads of Irish people 
and there's a line in the play that just goes, it's like, um, it seems like every person who ever listened to a tune in Ireland is here right now. And it's like, it's a, it's the, the voice kind of thing. It's like a narration of a, a large speech at the end. Like, I literally just looked up into the, into the crowd and to the thing, you know, here's a lot of Irish people go, yeah, <laughs> it's like, and the English people in the crowd were kind of like fucking aghast, like really shocked because this wasn't kind of theatre behaviour. I didn't give a fuck. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, because theatre can be quite, you know, so that was the thing about it. It's like the old school, I think, brought a lot of people into the theatre that would never go to the theatre. So bringing old school from that tiny stage and in most plays just go, they get seen by people, other people that go to the theatre, they don't get seen by anyone else. But going from there to the project in Dublin and people on about the tour run of it who wouldn't go to the theatre, seeing it, nights like that, nights in the thing. And then, the, you know, going to see it, like the premiere of the film. Um, not the premiere of the film, but being on set and shooting that scene in the alleyway with Ian Lloyd Anderson, the one at the end, was fucking, you know, that was something that was something I was really proud of. And Heartbreak as well. Heartbreak's kind of something that I was glad the way it turned out. And I was glad kind of that it could add to something, hopefully, I don't know. But um, yeah, Heartbreak was kind of something that it added, oh yeah, I don't know, it added to something, maybe, possibly, I'm not sure, but I was glad how it resonated with people. And if anybody, like, you know, people that come up with tattoos of lines from old school or tattoos of lines from heartbreak and you kind of go fucking hell that's mad you know you're kind of going Jesus just like I, this isn't false humility you know what I mean it should matter, but it is a kind of thing I was going that's mad that they fucking you know uh, uh, something that I did touch them they let you know about it you know what I mean because uh, usually when you do a play it's it's ephemeral it happens it exists for that moment in time and then it's gone and usually it's a play written by someone else or it's an old play so people have seen it a million times so it's a kind of a fleeting transaction that lasts for no longer than that moment in time and then it's gone and it's forgotten but if you can do something that actually like hangs around in either their consciousness or the cultural consciousness then you kind of get something you go actually this is the thing that's most uh, you know uh, proud of and I should say I'm obviously proud of having my fiance and getting married in the future but I'm just saying this is the pride in the sense of a professional career way if that makes sense